Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sisters in Crime. We hope that you all had a fun and safe holiday. Yeah, we've uh, missed you guys, and we're excited to be back and doing our first episode of 2022. Yeah. Today, I will be going through the Cleveland Torso Murder, also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Between 1935 and 1938, a serial killer murdered and dismembered at least 12 victims, only two of which were ever positively identified. This killer is officially unidentified and has remained the most horrific serial killer in Cleveland's history. So during the 1930s, the city of Cleveland was experiencing the Great Depression like most other cities at the time. However, right before that, Cleveland had been booming. During the mid to late 30s in Cleveland, it was filled with terror as one of the most gruesome serial killers started to strike. This all happened um, in the Kingsbury Run area, so I need to talk a little bit about this area Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric riverbed running from the flats to about East 90th Street. The train and rapid transit tracks still run through Kingsbury Run, bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broadway Avenue. Anyone local to Cleveland would know. Kingsbury Run was a dark, dreary, and dangerous place in the 1930s. So the dispossessed of the Great Depression lived in these appalling conditions. Trash and filth dominated the makeshift hobo jungle, quote-unquote, that occupied much of the run. These people, most of them were transient, so not from Cleveland, often rode the rails to escape the brutal Cleveland winters. I feel that deep. Or um, they would ride it just simply to keep to keep moving. The area just to the east of the run was known as the Roaring Third, home to bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. So in this grim setting, the most notorious murder case in Cleveland history would begin. September 1934, a young man finds the lower half of a woman's torso. He thought it was a tree trunk at first, but soon realized that it wasn't. Her thighs were still attached, but they were amputated at the knees, washed up on the shore of Lake Erie, just east of Brighton Hall. Interesting. I feel like they always think it's a mannequin. I know. The Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted some sort of a chemical preservative on the skin, which had turned it red, tough, and leathery. The subsequent search yielded only a few other body parts. The body was that of a female in her mid-30s. Her head was never found, though. She didn't really have any identifying marks or anything on her, and unfortunately, she was never identified and since they couldn't identify her, really, there were hardly any leads and no arrests were made at all. She is often referred to as the Lady of the Lake. It wasn't until two years later, actually, that this was this find was included in the official killing total and thus became known as victim number zero. It would be another year before the case began officially, and then it would be in another part of the city, the now infamous Kingsbury Run. At this time, authorities didn't really make connections like that to other crimes, so this was a first for the police of Cleveland. And then a year later, in September 1935, two teenage boys discovered the decapitated, emasculated corpse of a white male where East 49th Street deadens into Kingsbury Run. The body, which was naked except for a pair of socks, 
was clean and drained of blood. Whoa. Yeah. This reminds me of the ice truck killer from Dexter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and on the body, there are rope burns around both wrists. Coroner Pierce determined that the cause of death had been decapitation. However, they could identify this victim. Fingerprints identified him as Edward Andresi, a 28-year-old white male. Andresi had an arrest record, was rumored to be a homosexual, and frequenting the Roaring Third. Which, I just bring this up just to kind of have a profile on the victims. Although there's really no connections that are made in the end. Well, also, I definitely feel like maybe he wasn't taken very seriously. Or I know, like sex workers who are killed aren't taken like their killings aren't taken as seriously as somebody else who doesn't hold that position so especially Mm -hmm. in the 30s a man who was rumored to be a homosexual and had an arrest record i feel like maybe they might not pay as much attention to right it was kind of just like uh, like being a homosexual is unspeakable so then they just like didn't really care unfortunately yeah um, police discovered a second body nearby, though, also decapitated and emasculated. It appeared to be covered with the same chemical preservative, preservative as the Lady of the Lake. The body apparently had been dead for at least a couple of weeks, so a little different than the other two victims found, and the 40-year-old white male was never identified. So Andresi was somebody different. Yeah, there were two. Okay. So at this point, there were two victims. Um, at this point, there's three. three. Okay. But two victims at the One same. female, two males. Yes. One who was identified as Andresi, the unknown female and the unknown male. Yep. Okay. And then a few months later, in January 1936, a woman discovers about half the body of a female neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half bushel baskets. The baskets were left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. Everything except the head was recovered about 10 days later in a vacant lot on nearby Orange Avenue. So the same as in the case of Edward Andresi, the the cause of death had been decapitation. For some reason, however, the killer had waited for rigor mortis to set in before disarticulating the rest of the body this time. Fingerprints again would allow the identification of the body and identified them as Florence Polilo, waitress, barmaid, and prostitute. At the time of her death, she resided at East 32nd Street in Carnegie, right on the edge of the Roaring Third. Um, at this time, this was one of the first serial killings that police had ever investigated, just across the nation in general. And actually, the term serial killer was not even a term at this point, and this was one of the first cases where criminal profiling was used. Interesting. So a few months later, in June 1936, early one morning in Kingsbury Run, two young boys discovered the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of trousers close to the East 55th Street Bridge. The next day, police found the body of the 20-some-year-old man dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. The body was clean and drained of blood, and all was intact except for the head. Pierce again determined the death had been caused by, you guessed it, decapitation. Interesting. In spite of a fresh set of fingerprints and the presence of six distinctive tattoos on various parts of the body, police were never able to identify the victim this time either. 
I'm going to stop and say that I feel like this is very advanced for the 30s. Like, draining this, your victims of blood. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, and, like, we'll kind of get into some of, like, the profiles that they had. But it was obviously definitely someone who maybe was a doctor because mm-hmm. the killings were very precise. And it had to be someone a little bit bigger. They definitely thought a male. Yeah. Um, Just to be to- able to place like, these bodies everywhere right, and right yeah um, and actually a plaster reproduction of this man's head along with a diagram of the image and location of the tattoos were made to display at the great lakes exposition of 1936 more than 100,000 people saw the quote death mask and tattoo chart the tattooed man was never identified what is the great lakes exposition like is it just this big fair um, I actually, let me see. I think it was kind of like, um, like a fair back in the day. Cause you know, when we were talking about homes, there was like a big expedition. Yeah. Like a bunch of people gathered. Oh, okay. So the Great Lakes Exposition, also known as the World Fair of 1936, was held in Cleveland, Ohio in the summers of 1936 and 1937. Oh, Along- so the World's Fair was also held in Chicago around the time that Holmes did his so it was held in various oh, yeah. cities, and one of them was Cleveland. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Crazy. Cool. Because at this time, Cleveland was like up and coming, like right kind of before the de- depression started hitting. Cleveland was like during the Industrial Revolution and stuff. They, yeah. they're, I mean, they're kind of like a steel city now too. Right. And so this desk, ma- the original death mask, along with three others from the case, are on display at the Cleveland Police Museum, actually. And also, along with the exposition, authorities actually held their own torso conference just among the police, everybody involved in this case, that um, they all got together and, like, explained their knowledge of the killer. This was one of the first instances of criminal profiling, like I was talking about earlier. And they concluded that the killer would have to be a bigger male to so precisely cut up these bodies and transport them to locations that weren't accessible by car. So they thought that maybe their killer knew one or two of the victims, but mostly this was definitely a crime of opportunity uh, was the common consensus consensus between them that I had found. So Cleveland almost created their own little BAU. um, Right. Before, you know, the FBI did. Yeah, exactly. So the next month, in July 1936, another teenage girl came across the decapitated remains of a 40-year-old white male while walking through the woods near Clinton Road in Big Creek on the near west side. The victim had been dead about two months, and his head, as well as a pile of bloody clothing, was found nearby. Wow. So I'm starting to see a pattern here. It's mostly guys. Yeah. Mostly guys, but judging by the enormous quantity of blood that had seeped into the ground. This man had apparently been killed where his body was found and as opposed to being dumped somewhere. Which isn't the MO that we have seen so far. Right. That's what's weird. Some victims were left clean, drained of blood, and then we mm-hmm. have this where it's kind of almost dirty, not so meticulous. So, so is he getting sloppy? Does he right. feel like, is he getting bored? Yeah. He wants to be caught? He wants to stir the pot a little? I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Two months after this, September 1936, we're two years into these torsos showing up all around Cleveland. 
Another transient trips over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop on a train in Kingsbury Run. Police he, searched... Sorry, I was going to say, um, while living in Cleveland, like, have you ever heard about any of this? You know, not really. Nobody really talks about it, but also I feel like I don't really do much. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, like it was a really long time ago, and it's definitely more in East Cleveland, so. Yeah, nobody really talks about it. But it's kind of crazy. This is like a really notorious case. And it seems like a lot of people kind of don't really know about it. So after the transient trips over that torso, police searched a nearby pool, which was really just nothing more than a big open sewer and found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs. Police sent a diver in to make the recovery, which props to whoever that was. And at this point, it was estimated that the number of people that showed up to watch this was over 600. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So this is like a huge deal. He's the killer definitely has the eye of, you know, all of Cleveland Cleveland City. Yeah. Yeah. Authorities believe that the killer may have very well been part of those 600 people that showed up. Oh, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Absolutely. This victim was in his late 20s, and the cause of death, yet again, was decapitation. Coroner Pierce noted that the lack of hesitation marks and the disarticulation of the body indicated a strong, confident killer, very familiar with the human anatomy. The head had been cut off with one bold, clean stroke, and the victim died instantly. Identification was never made on this victim either. So were they able to narrow down uh, the weapon that was used since they just said that it was, you know, the head was cut off with one clean stroke? Like what kind of knife or weapon could do that? I'm Have they sh- mentioned it yet? I'm not sure. Like some most of my research didn't really mention a, a weapon. But at this time, I, I don't know that. I mean, it, he could have used several different knives or who knows? Yeah. Imagine a clean sweep through your neck. Like, you're. Yeah. That just insane. seems like a lot to get it, through it, on it one clean to, sweep. Yeah. It had to have been a machete. And, like they're saying, like, obviously yeah. it had to be someone big and strong. That's I guess crazy. with enough force. Yeah. Okay. Crazy. So here we are now with six brutal killings in one year alone, and the police had neither clues nor suspects. The Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported almost daily on the killings and the lack of a suspect. And like you were saying, the whole the whole city of Cleveland was just involved in this. Tension was high, as it usually is when there is a serial killer and no suspects. But, and this is kind of when they started naming him Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. You know, who was it? This is This is the time that it stuck, the Mad Butcher. And as pressure is mounting from Mayor Harold Burton at the time, recently appointed safety director, Elliot Ness gets more involved in the case. Hold on. Elliot Ness as in the beer, one of the beers that Great Lakes named. Is it? Yeah. Great Lakes named one of their beers. I think it's their amber ale. Yeah. It's their, it's their amber lager. Yeah. That's so, that's so cool. Elliot Ness is going to be like more of a figure in this case too. Okay. That's crazy. I never realized that. Shout out to you, Great Lakes. 
So as there is more pressure around the city, the police department put detectives Peter Marillo and Martin Zuleski on the case full time. They moved deftly through the seedy underworld that constitutes the run and the roaring third, often dressing the part, often on their own time. By the time the case had run its course, the two had interviewed more than 1,500 people and the department as a whole, more than 5,000. Oh, wow. Wow, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, so this is undoubtedly the biggest police investigation in Cleveland's history to this day. And the similarities in dismemberment, which were carried out with surgical precision, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, um, led investigating policemen to surmise that the murders were committed by a single person with significant knowledge of anatomy. And um, Lieutenant Peter Marlowe, who worked on the case for six years, characterized the killer as coldly efficient and as relentless as an executioner when in the mood to kill. In February 1937, a man finds the upper half of a woman's torso washed up on the shore of East Brighton Hall again. Unlike all previous victims, the cause of death had actually not been decapitation, but she had been after she had but she had been decapitated after she was already dead. The lower half of the torso washed up ashore three months later at about East 30th Street. The woman was in her mid-20s, and she was never identified. Did you, were you able to determine what her cause of death was? No, um, I wasn't, I wasn't really able to find her cause of death. And so that was in February. Next victim was found in June 1937. A teenage boy discovered a human skull under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. Next to it was a burlap bag containing the skeletal remains of what turned out to be a petite black woman about 40 years old. Dental work allowed for the unofficial identification of one Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. Police followed every lead that they had on her, and they eventually led nowhere. Our first non-white victim, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And the next month... July 1937, um, there were some labor labor problems in the flats that summer, and actually the National Guard had been called in to maintain order. A young guardsman standing watch by the West 3rd Street Bridge saw that the first piece of victim number nine in the wake of a passing tugboat. Over the next few days, police recovered the entire body except for the head from the waters of the Cuyahoga River. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart ripped out, clearly indicating a new element of viciousness in this killer's approach. Wow. The victim was in his mid to late 30s, and yet again, he was never identified. In April 1938, a young man on his way to work in the flats saw what he at first thought was a dead fish along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. Closer inspection revealed that it was the lower half of a woman's leg. The first piece of victim number 10. A month later, police pulled two burlap bags out of the river, containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of both legs. For the first time, Coroner Gerber detected drugs in the system. Were the drugs used to immobilize the victim, or was she an addict? They thought that the answer might... Yeah, they thought that the answer might come when they found the arms, but they they never found the arms. 
and she was never identified. Reminds me of Dexter drugging them and then killing them. I know. <laughs> That's all I can think about this whole Can time. you guys see a pattern with us? We love Dexter, <laughs> yeah. especially now that like the new season has come out. Um, so yeah, we Dexter's the OG. We love him. Yeah. This is the Harbor Bay Butcher. <laughs> Bay Harbor Bird. Bay Harbor. Bay Harbor Butcher. <laughs> this is the Bay Harbor Butcher. So later, a couple months later, August 16th, 1938, three scrap collectors rummaging around in a dump site at East 9th and Lakeside found the torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blazer and then wrapped again in an old quilt. The legs and arms were discovered in a recently constructed makeshift box wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. The head had been similarly wrapped. Gerber noted that some of the parts looked as if they had been refrigerated. Ice truck killer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> While searching for more pieces, the police discovered the remains of a second body only yards away. These two bodies had been placed in a location that was in plain view from safety director Elliot Ness's office window. Almost as if the killer had been taunting him. Interesting. Yep. And these are the last two victims that we know about. So both victims, 11 and 12. Um, and these victims were never identified either. Interesting. Were any of the victims identified except for like two? Nope. Only two. Interesting. Yeah. Ness was well known at the time for heading up the Untouchables, a group of federal law enforcement agents that worked to take down Al Capone. And it was believed that his savviness as a detective would bring fast closure to the case. Interesting. Yeah, but at 12.40 a.m., August 18, 1938, Elliot Ness and a group of 35 police officers and detectives raid those hobo jungles of Kingsbury Run. 11 squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks descend on the largest cluster of makeshift shacks where the Cuyahoga River twists behind um, Public Square. Ness's raiders worked their way south through the run, eventually gathering up 63 men. And at dawn, police and firemen searched the deserted shanties for clues, but then on orders from Ness, the shacks were set on fire and burned to the ground. And obviously the press severely criticized Ness for his actions. The public was afraid and frustrated, and the common feeling amongst the public was that the raid would do nothing to solve the murders. And they were right about that. Uh, nothing came about like solving the murders, but for whatever reason, the murders did stop after that. A few days after the raid, a doctor named Francis Sweeney was arrested with the belief that he was the Cleveland Torso murderer. Sweeney had been a medical soldier in World War I, responsible for field amputations. He was personally interviewed by Ness and given two separate polygraph tests. He failed them both. Which, as we know now, polygraphs really don't hold anything yeah, in the court of law. So, yeah. However, before he could be tried, it was revealed that Sweeney was the first cousin of Ness's political opponent, Congressman Martin Sweeney. Ness realized oh. there was, yeah. Ness realized there was no way he would be able to prosecute him successfully, and was forced to let him go. In July 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer Frank DeLiesel for the murder of Flo Polillo. 
Delazel had lived with her for a while, and subsequent investigation revealed that he had been acquainted with Edward Andresi and Rose Wallace. His quote-unquote confession turned out to be incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details, almost like he had been coached. Um, they think that he basically was like coerced into a confession. And before he could go to trial, Delazel was found dead in his cell. He hung himself from a hook only five feet, seven inches from the floor. And as it turns out, he was five feet, eight inches tall. And the autopsy of him revealed that he had six broken ribs, all of which had been obtained while in sheriff's custody. So it was believed that he was basically like coerced into the confession because he was either beaten or some sort of police tactic. Brutality. Yeah. Yeah. To this day, like no one thinks that Frank Delisle was the torso killer. So often wondered why did Sheriff O'Donnell. And that's kind of the two big leads. The Kingsbury Run murders remain one of the most perplexing cases in national criminal history, as well as Ohio, obviously. Rumors as to who may have been the killer. There's much speculation of who it may have been. But it definitely seems that Elliot Ness had a suspect who he believed was the killer that had been taunting him. Do you think it could have been the guy that he was interviewing? I think so. That was the cousin of his um, opponent? Yeah, I definitely think that that's definitely like a a big possibility. I wish I could solve this because this is so interesting. (laughs) I know. And um, according to ClevelandPoliceMuseum.org, all official police records on this case have been lost, destroyed, or removed. How? (laughs) Right. And since 1939, no new information has been found at all. And... Um, some believe that the torso murders continued well into the 40s as well, and maybe even into the 50s or 60s, but there's really not a lot of proof. That's really interesting. Why is all this evidence, has it been um, destroyed? I'm not sure. I just, I saw that on the Cleveland Police Museum. I didn't look a ton into how it all had been stro- destroyed, but yeah, like, Was because... there a flood? I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> okay, well... Let us know what you guys think. And next week I will be, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but hopefully I'm not this nasally. I'm recovering from being sick. So, um, but I'm really, really excited to bring you guys a new story next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.